business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, creatives, entrepreneurs, media, and tech. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. For a lot of these legacy organizations, they are out there gathering information. At the top of their game, they're really true experts on the thing they cover. And then they feed it through a series of tubes and it comes out sometimes a little bit unrecognizable to them, sometimes not the thing they told their source that they were writing. It's nice to have this very direct conversation that isn't mediated by a, a structure that is designed to kind of homogenize everybody's voice and identity. In 2022, on the eve of a brutal shakeout in digital media, advertising fell, interest rates soared, subscribers were login fatigued. New York Times media columnist Ben Smith joined with the CEO of Bloomberg Media to go out and launch an ambitious media venture called Semaphore. What were they thinking and what is the runway like? Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Please rate us. If you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often have to cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. Follow along on all the socials at handle FullDRadio. My DMs, alas, are always open. Joining me from Manhattan is Ben Smith of Semaphore. Semaphore Media is one of the founders and founding editors. He was previously the media columnist at the New York Times. He was in there in the heyday. I guess it's having another heyday now, Politico uh, and BuzzFeed News. His book, which dropped recently, is Traffic. It is the story of genius rivalry and delusion and the billion-dollar race to go viral. How are you, sir? I am good. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, you know I love Semaphore. I love the newsletter. It launched, what, October of 2022? Yeah, that's right. Here's the great thing is, and take this as props, when I get your newsletter, the media newsletter on Sunday night, and it also brings back the voice of the late David Carr, who I remember reading on Sunday nights. It was like a great way to start the week. My question to you, and you must have all sorts of relatives asking you this, is you were the media columnist at the New York Times. Your partner in this, Justin Smith, was the CEO of Bloomberg Media, where I cross pads with him briefly. The New York Times was resurgent. Bloomberg Media had all the money in the world. Why would you go off to suddenly start this now in Semaphore? Well, I think if you ask consumers, regular people, you know, do you like do you like the news? Do you like the way the media is working these days? The overwhelming answer to that is no. And I think most people in media know that, but it's it's hard to change what you're doing. It's hard to listen to criticism. And I think, you know, I spent a couple of years at the New York Times you know, really sort of feeling and watching those tensions play out in all these legacy newsrooms and seeing like, wow, it would sure be liberating just to start from scratch and try to go right at the concerns people have about the news. I mean, there are many, obviously, and some of them are contradictory, but two big ones are that people feel very, very overwhelmed and that for a variety of reasons, they don't know who to trust. In the biggest picture way, you know, for, for Semaphore, that we want to give people the kind of transparency around who we are, where we're coming from, what our reporters actually think about the work they're doing. We separate in the story the facts from the reporter's view in a way that people seem to like. You know, we and, and we try to give people multiple perspectives, not just one, including global perspectives on every story. Ben, where did this conversation happen? Look, we're always in the media broadly writ large talking to one another, and we get the spilkies, whether you're at a magazine. 
the opportunity cost of leaving is not as big anymore, even though some of these places, such as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, remain strong. Many are billionaire backstopped, but within the journalist necessarily is a maybe a perceived, you know, I'm not getting enough attention. I want to be my own franchise. Definitely at the New York Times, you have to be subordinate to the gray lady, right? And the brand there. And there's only so much room to maneuver and outshine within an organization like that. Well, you know, the fun, I mean, I had a great time at the Times. And, you know, the Times, one of the funny things about my job is that for some historic, you know, unexplained historic rule, there are two people at the New York Times who are allowed to write kind of in the first person. And one is the media columnist and the other is the Metro columnist, uh, Jania Belafonte. I don't really know why. It's just like, as in many big institutions, that's just the way it is. And nobody asks questions. And so I actually had a lot of room to run. And I, and I felt like Times readers really enjoyed the sort of breaking of the fourth wall and the, and the just dir- talking directly in a human voice to them, you know, acknowledging your own point of view and your background and what you think about the stuff you're writing more than they liked just the facts, ma'am, news writing which actually, ironically, is never just the facts. And I think the Times is edging in the direction of giving its reporters clearer voices, clearer identities, slightly larger little pictures on the website, things like that. But very, very hard to change the culture of a big institution. Let me ask you this thought exercise. Whenever I visit you know, former colleagues who are now at the New York Times, you sit outside and I asked John Kelly of Puck this. If you got to put together a dream team of every reporter you ever wanted from every organization, and you created Tabla Rosa, a brand new news brand, and I don't know, you could call it whatever you want, Puck, you could call it, back in the day, Slate, XYZ Media, you could then turn around and in this crowded media environment, go to venture capitalists and say, people will pay for this kind of coverage. Do you see what I'm saying? News, News can pay for itself outside of the world of the New York Times. I always wondered with so many people going off on their own, leaving big media organizations, HR infrastructure back office be damned, I just the opportunity cost of doing it is smaller for me now I can go off. But can can that scale? Is that something right now you guys are ad supported in Semaphore? Right. I mean, I think that there was, you know, I was at BuzzFeed for 8 years and there was the and and we raised enormous amounts of money on the promise of a kind of tech scale business, something that could become massive and multiply and, and had and raised money from venture capitalists who, you know, that was really their goal. You know, I, I mean, I think that was, I'm sure those investors now think that was a mistake, although maybe a good roll of the dice. And certainly I, I think news can be a good business if you do good work, work really hard at it, if you take the business extremely seriously. And, and I think part of the reason I'm excited about Semaphore is because my business partners are so strong and experienced. Justin mm. was the you know, been, been kind of at the top of this game for 30 years. It was the CEO of Bloomberg, of The Atlantic, of The Week. My colleague Rachel Oppenheim is also a top New York Times revenue person. And I think, like, I, I, I take that stuff way more seriously than I used to. I think that the usual, the, I mean, I, I was at Politico at mm-hmm. the launch and at BuzzFeed News when we launched. And the model there was basically get some journalists together, break news, do great journalism, question mark, question mark, question mark, equals money. And that worked for, and that actually did work out for Politico after some kind of painful years. Did not work out for BuzzFeed. We certainly at Semaphore are, you know, in a totally journalistically ethical way, thinking hard from the start of how we build a business around the journalism. I mean, you went and got trophy journalists. I'm thinking of Liz Hoffman from the Wall Street Journal, right? Dave Weigel, who's one of those names that kind of stands on his own, whether he's at the Washington Post or Slate or whatever you put on it right now, his name travels, his name. So in the conversations you had with talents like these, how could you convince them that you can, within kind of the confines of the transparency that we have as kind of our 
abiding, you know, founding principle. You can go out there and be yourselves. You can innovate. You can have a stake in the company and not feel like, you know, a cog in the giant machine. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the um, core appeal to journalists of a place like Semaphore. I mean, I think journalists feel the same thing that readers do. They feel like they are, for a lot of these legacy organizations, they are out there gathering information. They're at the top of their game. They're really true experts on the thing they cover. And then they feed it through a series of tubes and it comes out sometimes a little bit unrecognizable to them, sometimes not the thing they told their source that they were writing because they lost control of it in the process. Mm -hmm. You know, at best, it kind of disguises what they actually think. At worst, it distorts it. And, you know, and it's and, and I think they feel a lot of journalists, I certainly feel it's like it's nice to have this very direct conversation and connection with your audience that isn't mediated by a, a structure that is designed to kind of homogenize everybody's voice and identity. Um, and, so, yeah, yeah so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good pitch. I mean, it's funny. It's in the news business, if you start talking about influencers or personal brands or stuff like that, creators, everybody kind of throws up in their mouths. It is that same trend that you see over the last like 75 years across every industry from the movies to sports toward an audience that has a more direct connection to the journalist, to the individual, and away from kind of just putting your blind trust in a faceless brand. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for, for some reason, I thought about the metaphor here of LeBron James. I'm a monster Lakers fan. I've been a Lakers fan for my entire life. LeBron James has ported that talent everywhere, from Cleveland to Miami, you know, back to Cleveland to Los Angeles. I don't think of him so much so as a kind of a Laker in the Magic or Kareem realm as I do a kind of a self-traveling franchise. And a lot of these free agents will ping each other in the offseason and say, let's get together and, you know, win a trophy, you know, brand regardless, city regardless. And so I'm wondering to what extent that's now the reality among star journalists. I mean, certainly you can go off and start a newsletter through Substack or some of these other services, but you have to be pretty courageous in your convictions to do that. It's kind of eat what you kill, right? Well, I mean, I think most journalists and, and particularly the kind of journalists who break news are very kind of clear-eyed about what the kind of level of support you need. I mean, I feel this. You do need lawyers. You need colleagues. You need a good editor. You're not. It's very hard. And you don't see. There are a couple, but you mostly don't see the kinds of journalists who break huge political or business news doing it on their own on Substack, because there's a level of sort of infrastructure you need. And yet, at the same time, you feel the appeal of this direct connection to an audience. And I think we're trying to find a sweet spot where that kind of great reporter who breaks news gets both the support that they need to do it at the highest level and the direct connection to an audience that they and that the audience prefer. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ben Smith. He's editor-in-chief and co-founder of Semaphore. He was previously the New York Times media columnist. He was at BuzzFeed News, where he was editor-in-chief. In past lives at the Politico, did I see the forward? I mean, you've traveled to what, Eastern Europe or Northern Europe? You're really well-traveled in your post-collegiate masthead experience. Let me ask you uh, specifically on the dispatch that you sent Sunday night, because I found it so intriguing that I just had to you know, go and direct message you. You said it's become an axiom that every American presidential campaign helps launch a new medium or media company or both. You wrote there was CNN in 96, Fox and Drudge in 2000, ABC's The Note in 2004. I was lucky enough, you say, to be in the middle of that in 2008, when Politico brought the speed of blogging to political journalism, and again, when social media, embodied by Twitter and BuzzFeed, shaped 2012. Facebook dominated 2016. The scoreboard starts getting murkier there, but I think you could say the resurgent New York Times and Washington Post won the strange COVID election of 2020. 
But, you write, the scoreboard started getting murkier for a reason in 2020. By then, fragmentation had taken hold in earnest. I don't just mean the MSNBC, CNN, Fox partisan split. I mean a world in which presidential campaigns spend most of their time talking to a confusing array of media figures. Your writer Max Tani mentions Sean Ryan, Clay Travis, Jay Shetty, and Jason Bateman, and reaching tens or hundreds of thousands of viewers at a time. Okay, Jason Bateman, who in my childhood was, you know, uh, I guess preteen heartthrob, teen wolf. He is now the aspirational pod to go on if you're a Joe Biden. I understand that. <laughs> was it Donald Trump is going to potentially be interviewed by Mike Tyson? You know, in terms of reaching the demo of going out there, you can cherry pick more than ever and skip the likes of CNBC, Fox, and MSNBC, and then some. Yeah. I mean, it's a very strange moment in media because the big outlets are getting smaller right? Like everything is kind of melting a little. Even the most successful New York Times, Washington Post built these huge subscription businesses are fighting to stay level and losing subscriptions as the news got more boring post-Trump and post-COVID. Cable is shrinking, broadcast is shrinking, radio, terrestrial radio is shrinking. And and no single big thing is coming up to replace it. it. It seemed like that was social media, but now social media is falling apart too. And what comes next seems to be this huge array of smaller, different things. I mean, one of the, my, my favorite statistics is that if, if you ask people who their favorite podcast host is, like many people do not have a favorite podcast host. For many of them, obviously it's you. But for the, for the, the plurality, it's Joe Rogan, which is you'd expect. But he only gets 5%. So you have a market where the biggest share is 5%. And every other share is smaller. That's a really weird market. It's, it's, you know, everything is in the middle tail. It's not the kind of power law distribution, very, very steep slope downward that we're used to if you look at like search engines or something like that. And was this not in the prophecy of Chris Anderson's bestseller, I think in 2006, The Long Tail, Why the Future of Business is Selling Less of More? No one could imagine it back then. I remember when this book was making the rounds at Business Week, this was still the dominant era of cable TV. That bundle still had not been unbundled. You could not question the supremacy of a CNN, Fox, MSNBC. And now you see a a Disney pullback and say that we'd have to seek a partner for ESPN, which would have been unthinkable. We have to put ABC up for auction. Or you know about CNN's terrible year with the Chris Licht defenestration. It's all happening, you know, if you could explain for our listeners, fundamentally because people are pulling away. My children spend much more time on YouTube others much more time on TikTok and Instagram than they would anything on linear television. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the long tail prediction did not really come to pass in American commerce. Like Amazon is totally, totally dominant. Walmart is in second and then it falls really fast. Didn't come to, didn't happen in, you know, digital services, right? Like email, like Gmail, so dominant. Right, right. But I do think in that it's certainly, and it, and it didn't seem to be happening in media but now I think in certain areas, it does, does feel like it's, 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 we're sort of shifting into that moment. Yeah. And so people, I mean, when you talk about Jason Bateman and Max brings him up in the column, to go on, what is it, Armchair Expert or any of these pods is a huge get for any author. You know, time was you would want to be on Oprah or Terry Gross, Fresh Air to sell By a book. By the way, as I'm you sure. still would, right? Like, I mean, it's not right. a totally binary thing. Still wish Terry Gross had me on to sell my book, right? Like, but... Also, there are a zillion other outlets reaching smaller but non-zero numbers of people. Can you explain the TikTok phenom? My impression is that it's not getting as much coverage as it should as kind of a media disruption phenom, because I think of a lot of the ancillary, the connection to the surveillance state and Beijing, 
and whatnot. But when I talk to young people, when I go speak to college kids, high schoolers, there's just so much more time spent on this. And I don't want to seem like an old man, but it just dwarfs everything else we're talking about. Podcast time, YouTube time, and certainly, you know, time on on the cable telly. Yeah, I mean, TikTok is obviously the sort of big dominant new player. But in a way, I mean, I think if you ask young people, do you feel passionately attached to TikTok or to the creators you see on TikTok? I mean, it's ultimately a short video player that does a great job showing people videos they like. And I'm not, and I think you can say, so I actually find some of the other, the, the notion that there's, you know, it's this algorithm, you know, that they have some super magic algorithm, you know, Facebook in its traditional grindy copycat way is building reels to be another short video player that shows people goofy short videos they like. And I mean, I think one interesting thing about it is neither has any real interest or aspiration in getting into the news or politics space, having seen what happened over the last 10 years. So I think, but I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I tend to think people overreact to dumb youth culture. Let me ask you, how are the linear cable TV players, uh, how are they going to contort to get on that over-the-top thing. I mean, I, I do MSNBC quite a bit, but you sometimes get overtures from an NBC News Now thing or a CBS News Now, these streaming platforms where you don't have to have the cable connection and you don't pay the $170 a month. ABC, to a certain extent, has had to do it. I have not been impressed that CNN has weaned itself. I mean, it did have that foray into, what was it, CNN Plus? Yeah. Which it, it shuttered after blowing hundreds of millions of dollars on. How are they, and again, this is an innovator's dilemma. The cable package, the cable compact was so sweet from a business model perspective to them that they were really disinclined to self-destruct. And now it really seems imminently existential. If you talk to someone like Disney's Bob Iger or Brian Roberts at Comcast, it, it is imminently kind of innovator die. Yeah. I mean, somebody at one of those big cable networks that the president of the network said to me a couple years ago, you know, I'm not we're too worried because we're melting in the shade, which was like, I sort of thought, oh, that makes sense. Then it's like, wait a second. You're just like, that's not a strategy. Like you're melting. That's not good. Um, and I do think that that is starting to come home. Tell me, Ben, if you can tell me more about that aha conversation with your partner in this with Justin Smith. Again, the backdrop for him is that he had the ear of Mayor Mike Bloomberg. He tur- he brought in, I remember it was a big deal when they brought him in, I believe from the Atlantic, to take over Bloomberg Media, to be the CEO of Bloomberg Media. You have a guy in Mayor Mike, what is he worth, $75 billion? Too Being much. in that building, I was never impressed that media ever had to be a profit center. It just kind of had to cover itself. It, and they've done a great job, not just with Business Week, but with their podcast. Bloomberg TV doesn't have to be so profitable. And even then, you kind of get the spilkies and say, we're not, both of us together, at the New York Times and at Bloomberg Media, are not going to get the leeway and the resources to innovate, to hit directly this cross-section that you're talking about. What, 200 million English-speaking, college-educated people that want transparency, that want the facts, that want the opinion to be delineated as such. Talk to me about that convo. Yeah, I mean, I say, I mean, you know, it's the news is it's not a this is not, and I think this is actually one of the reasons that venture capital and kind of technology style investment doesn't really make sense in news. It's not like a silver bullet business. It's not like we figured out one thing. I think it's more that we sort of we've been talking for years about kind of I don't know our sense of our the audience's dissatisfaction with what everyone was doing and how hard it is to change. I do think he and I particularly share a sense that American news in particular is so parochial that the big American mm-hmm. outlets filter every story through the lens of what's happening in the United States at that moment. And so when Trump was ascendant, 
Every story about every other country was about how Bolsonaro was the Brazilian Trump and Modi was the Indian Trump and Duterte was the Filipino Trump. And I think with much less attention to, hey, wait, there are these big forces at work that all of these different candidates, all these different people are riding. They're not basically about the United States. And when Black Lives Matter is ascended, every, you know, every global story becomes seen through that lens when COVID and through the American lens. And when COVID hits, every, I think that like there was a very, very strong impulse to cover it as an American story, as what is Donald Trump doing wrong, which on one hand, obviously true, obviously a great story, obviously what accountability journalism ought to be doing. But then at some point you step back and you say, huh, like Western Europe and the United States, the outcomes weren't that different. We did worse. Trump screwed some stuff up, but there's other stuff happening. And I think like these are the biggest stories in the world, right? The rise of the far right, the rise of social media, the rise and the spread of COVID. And they're just fundamentally global stories that when you cover them from a parochial American lens, you lose a lot. Full disclosure, we're talking to Semaphore's Ben Smith. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners on NPR member station WVTF, Radio IQ, across the great Commonwealth. We are out west on KPPQLP. I understand we are in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. Holler if you too would like us on your air. And a shout out to our live show series, which resumes at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business. It kicks off with James Beard Foundation-nominated chef Sonny Bowija. In September, we're going to have Steve Inskeep of NPR with his new book on Lincoln in October. Rashida Jones of MSNBC joins us in November. And I'm happy to tell you that Secretary Pete Buttigieg will be joining us bigly at the Maudlin Center in December. Follow at Full D Radio for details. Ticket information soon. If you are just joining us, my guest is Ben Smith. He is editor-in-chief and founder of Semaphore, the yearling media startup. He was previously at the New York Times as media columnist, as BuzzFeed News, as editor-in-chief. Very well-traveled at Politico, at The Forward, has been in Europe where his bylines have appeared. Sir, can you comment on... I'm fascinated having covered, for example, emerging markets at Business Week. When we went to Sub-Saharan Africa back in 2007... Africa is a ginormous continent, and Sub-Saharan Africa is just a ginormous swath. And Ghanaians hate it when a correspondent for a Western media outlet flies in from Johannesburg or from Kenya to cover Ghana. Or Nigerians become really resentful. If you want to understand Lagos, why are you sending somebody in from Cairo to cover Lagos? And that has been kind of the default for many Western media organizations. To cover something as granular and as tribal and as different, what with all the languages and markets, it seems like it was overwhelmingly done just to say we have a man in sub-Saharan Africa, or at best, like if you're the FT or economist, from the perspective of a Western investment banker. Um, how have you guys turned that around? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's right. There's an old, um, I feel like it was a blog called Africa is a Country. And it, it is sort of a running joke that like, right, that the, of the kind of the Western perception of this homogenous dark continent or whatever, you know, but there, but, and, and I don't purport to be an expert on African journalism, but we hired, so we hired a great Nigerian journalist guy named Yinka Adagoke, who was actually the founder of Quartz Africa and, and has a very sort of specific and successful view on how you do regional journalism. And, and Justin helped found Quartz, I remember yeah, when that's the Atlantic right. did that in 2011. It, it got huge headlines. Yeah, they worked, they worked together there. 
And he has this, a very kind of specific view about reaching people. I mean, you know, we have bureaus in South Africa, uh, Kenya, and Nigeria, and, and stringers around the continent. You know, reaching people who are, in his phrase, global Africans, people who are part of a global conversation, who many of whom are in those countries, many of whom are native to those countries and maybe between Lagos and New York, Lagos and London, Lagos and Houston, you know, who, and, and people, but people who are very plugged into and care deeply about the conversations in those countries, super frustrated that if you want to read about Nigeria, you're sort of either reading like really well done Reuters articles or FT articles about Nigeria, not for Nigerians, or a local press that is really struggling for a lot of reasons. And there's not something at the level of the FT that is being written, you know, by Nigerians for Nigerians. And I think we're trying to fill that gap, that tier. I just remember visiting Lagos, Nigeria in 2007. You see such a cross-section of, I mean, it's potentially one of the most overpopulated cities on the planet. Its system is taxed. Parts are sinking. Uh, sewage problems. People constantly coming in from the countryside, working in these massive markets, the traffic from the airport to any livable part of the city is impossible. But yet there's this undercurrent of commerce and prosperity in the air. We were told that if you showed up at a street corner with a bunch of unlocked iPods, you could have sold them for like 3000 bucks a piece, mm. sight unseen. And there was no one covering that. It just frustrated the heck out of me that there were all these bankers that were educated in the West, they were English-speaking, they wanted to go back to Nigeria, they saw there was a big sub-Saharan gold rush, but such a paucity of coverage. And so you have you effectively have a bureau there right now? Yeah, we've, we've got a reporter there. We've got an editor in, and, and, and an editor in London who's actually a Ghanaian guy who was based in Nigeria for many years for Reuters. And Yinka goes back and forth. So yeah, we're... Um, and, and as you say, it's a massively diverse society with all sorts of different people you know, in a huge, huge country and growing fast, huge economy growing fast. And, you know, a slice of them, not everybody by any means, but there's a slice of people, you know, in particularly Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, who are reading the New York Times, the Financial Times, um, and like them and, you know, get their news about the U.S. and about Britain from them and hate reading these, you know, foreign correspondent dispatches about their own countries would like quality journalism written by people who know their way around and who are writing for them. Is your impression that there's ultimately a willingness to pay in these developed markets? I know it's an insider baseball question. We could look at the a huge ascendant economies. Uh, Indonesia is going to be a massive top five economy on the planet within several decades. You could look at frontier economies. Uh, Colombia, which I visited, Iran, if it could break out of its out of its shell. Is there a culture there that was not subsidized by something else, kind of either crooked media barons or the false promise of newspaper advertising of yesteryear that people could get used to the idea of actually paying for quality news? Um, you know, what, what we have already found is that there are advertisers who would like to be associated with quality news. And there's a real sort of, you know, mismatch between supply and demand there. Like the, and, and, you know, it's not as big a market as the United States, but also there's very, very, nobody's really trying. And so we've so far found it, you know, and, and our business right now is advertising and events. I do think, I mean, if you look at the trajectory of the American and British and Western news business, what you'll see is nobody was willing to pay, nobody was willing to pay. And, the, and then Netflix and Spotify kind of trained people that, ah, you know what, you can pay for content. And the culture shifted. And so I kind of think that's likely to play out gradually, globally. That this, you know, I mean, it wasn't something where the New York Times finally persuaded people. It was just that technically and culturally it became normal to pay for 
content on your phone. And so people started doing it. Has anyone truly wrested the bone from the dog's mouth other than the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal? The Wall Street Journal, my impression under Rupert Murdoch is that it's kind of a mandatory B2B purchase. If you're an investment banker, a broker, a hedgy, you T&E this stuff. Uh, the New York Times became the indispensable login for news, especially during the Trump years. It had that Trump bump. It very deftly went into podcasting. It disrupted NPR in some respects with the daily. It became this all-in-one uh, login. You had Wordle. You had them by The Athletic. Who else has been able to pull that off? And all these people across the country who are seeing their local newspaper wither or maybe Alden Capital comes in and guts what's left of it, and they can only look at The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, and a handful of digital startups that might be aggregators, that they're not overwhelmingly kind of news gatherers. I mean, that's a lot of questions. I mean, local news has huge challenges, always basically an advertising business. And, you know, and I think in a way, that's the great disaster of contemporary American news, at least. And I think it's a separate problem from will people pay national subscriptions. But no, I think, I think if you look at the UK, you see a number of publishers doing pretty well with paid content. Even, you know, the, um, the Telegraph, which is for sale now, has a pretty decent subscription business. I think, you know, in the US, it's the Washington Post is the other big one. And then and then an array of more trade or niche publications. But yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think it's, I don't, you know, I think one thing about the news business, like it's not such a great business. It's not a tech business. It's not something where you're going to say, wow, we figured out the one, the one silver bullet solution that is going to, you know, make us all rich. It's a business where if you, you know, you really care about the work and if you work really hard and you develop an audience and you if you work really hard at it and have four or five or six different revenue lines, you can build a, a good business. But I think if you look at, there's no one silver bullet. I think subscription is certainly part of it. I mean, I think if you look at like the best media companies in the world, like say Disney, say, is probably regarded as the best media company in the world. And you ask like, well, what, what business is Disney in? What's their core business? The, the answer is that, well, they have like 17 different revenue lines from cruises to movies and they man and they manage them all really carefully. And it's not it's not kind of that it's not the kind of business that in a way we're used to glorifying, like this kind of tech founder who figures it all out and suddenly gets rich. My impression is that there's always been cross subsidized by something, either the generosity of a billionaire or in ABC's case, ESPN at Disney has been subsidizing that for the longest time. Back in the day at the Washington, the old Washington Post, it was Kaplan, the education company, and now it's Jeff Bezos, one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Um, that's certainly true. But I think, I think if you look at the New York Times versus the Washington Post, what you'll see is the kind of downside of having a billionaire owner. The Times owners are not billionaires. Like they're millionaires, but they make their, their wealth is tied up in the New York Times. And they were terrified of what was happening in the aughts and the 90s. They, you know, they, made a strategic decision to sell off everything other than the New York Times. You know, they used to own the Boston Globe. They owned some, right. you know, they owned all sorts of stuff. They sold a everything. Stake in the Red Sox. They were basically, the Sox, exactly, sold it all. We're essentially like throwing the furniture into the fire to keep the thing burning, but preserved the Times. And, you know, have built a very, very strong, innovative, interesting business that is not subsidized by billionaires, that is subsidized by their audience. The Post thrashing and flailing around in a similar situation, I think panicked more, made more decisions that undercut the core of the Washington Post in the aughts, and then were basically rescued by Bezos and had a great journalistic period under Trump. But when, the, when that wave receded, when that tide came out of audiences feeling like they needed to read everything 100 times a day, what you saw was that the New York Times had this huge lifestyle business around cooking, around crosswords, around podcasts, around games. And the Washington Post really had not, none of that. And I think that was because the Times is ultimately a commercial enterprise that needed to survive. 
In that same vein, you know, I'm thinking Jeff Bezos is worth a crap ton of money, was just photoed on his yacht with his partner having a great time. He can turn to more philanthropic things. This is the kind of company Amazon, and, and he personally bought the Washington Post. It's not like Amazon bought them, but he paid 14 billion cash, Amazon did for the Whole Foods, and that's not scrutinized. So if he personally paid something like 200, 250 million for the Washington Post, it's less than a rounding error for him. I'm also thinking in that vein of Elon Musk of Tesla, who's now the wealthiest person in the world with an estimated net worth of $240 billion. He had overpaid to the tune of $44 billion for Twitter, which he's now kind of lording over. He's rebranded it as X to varying degrees. It is an indispensable tool for journalists. It's where I've connected with you. It's where I see great stuff curated by Semaphore and other news people out there. I, it's the first thing I open in the morning, but it's kind of like, I wonder if it's what you mentioned with Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, that it doesn't matter to him potentially if he loses all this money on it, if he does these obtuse things and makes the user experience terrible. You know, $15 billion stake in a $44 billion acquisition for a person worth $240 billion is really not meaningful. Yeah, I mean, we live in this era of incredible inequality and the rich people are so rich that they can just like randomly buy stuff and break them. I mean, that's just true. What's going to happen to Twitter? I mean, there was this attempt by Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and Meta to come out with threads. It got a, a paroxysm of coverage, let's say, four weeks ago, and it's kind of tapered off. Is it that we in the press pay too much attention to Twitter, that it's actually so small in the grand scheme of things compared to Insta and TikTok? So for sort of pop culture, for sure. I mean, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are dominant, massive social forces. But Twitter was for a decade the home of the elite conversation. It's where heads of state and leaders of political parties and journalists, and it used to be celebrities, but they left a few years ago, would talk about issues of public import. And, and, and it was where opinions were shaped and things like that. So I actually think, I, I don't buy that it, it was not an important platform. But I would say all these things, you know, they're fundamentally social institutions. And I think it's easy to under, I mean, I think Twitter was already falling apart before Elon Musk got there and not for some complex reason, but just because like, you know, just like the blue Facebook app, not the company Facebook, but the blue app, you know, people like things for a while and they get tired of them. They're social institutions. They're like bars or nightclubs. You go to one for a while and then all your friends go somewhere else. And so you go to the other place or you go, or you, instead of going to the bar, you're home with your kids and, and nobody is like, you know, there's no big philosophical reason things go in and out of fashion. That's just the nature of, of social institutions. And I think that's fundamentally what was happening with social media, you know, that, that after the, dec the decade of the, of the 2010s, where it was the dominant social force, people were kind of tired of it and annoyed by it for just totally obvious intuitive reasons. And we're moving into, you know, smaller, more closed spaces like, you know, group chats and stuff. So I think by the time Elon got there, Twitter was already struggling to maintain its relevance a little bit. And he certainly, and these are very fragile things, right? Like, you know, like think of it as like a bar, like say you close a bar for two weeks, like, or you change the decor in a way that everybody hates. Like there's just no guarantee they ever come back. And I think he kind of came in and, and accelerated its decline, but also brought a bunch, maybe brought some new patrons in. I mean, I do think there's a very feasible world where Twitter is no longer, I think it's already sort of lost its status as being the place that kind of that elite inside conversation that does have a lot of social importance plays out. I think that's no longer true, but a you know, very part, important part of the conservative conversations plays out, plays out there. It's where people talk to each other about cryptocurrency. Some of the sports stuff there, I think is still really valuable. And I, you could sort of see, I mean, I think if you think about Reddit, like there's a social platform that 
nobody says, or I don't say, you couldn't do journalism without Reddit, or there's no way to know what's happening in the world without Reddit. But I love Reddit, and there's some subreddits that are really valuable and interesting for me, and there's communities there. And I think Twitter could stabilize like that at some point. Ben, where does LinkedIn, if at all, fit into your kind of social consumption appetite? I mean, people forget, I think Microsoft paid $26 billion for it. Again, Microsoft is one of these multi-trillion dollar market cap companies right now. <laughs> LinkedIn is never going to move the needle on them. But it's certainly outside of the self-congratulation and the kind of the faux, I love my job, <laughs> jingoism that you see on LinkedIn. It seems to be a cleaner place where people can post. It's user-friendly. Uh, it, it hasn't gotten that much press, though. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument that I think it's probably the most, maybe the only commercially successful social network. But certainly, the no, I mean, it's an incredible phenomenon. It, it's, I, it's not, it's not. I do not particularly enjoy the content. As a journalist, it's an incredible tool. I mean, I because it's I increasingly use it to, you know, it's it, that that rather than Twitter is going to be the place where I message you and say, hey, I'm looking for a tip about this story. Give me a call. And and by the way, like a premium subscription on LinkedIn, I've always kind of mooched on the free, I think is something on the order of five, $600 a year for a B2B subscription. Microsoft, which is one of the great subscription franchises in history, if you think about Microsoft Office and LinkedIn and it has Skype and other things, if it can kind of tack that on and make that its, its nameplate kind of social media company, but it has other things going on. And I wonder... You know, it, it gets into this wormhole. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? But again, nobody's really talking about it that much. It has been seemingly all threads versus Twitter X all the time. And I wonder if surreptitiously something else is happening. Yeah, well, I would say, again, it's, it's this fragmentation story. Lots of different things are happening. Twitter and thread, you know, threads will be smaller than, you know, threads probably won't ever achieve the kind of centrality to, again, to news, really, say to live sports that Twitter had, but nothing will. I think there's going to be lots of different experiences that are less centralized. I think that's kind of I mean my that's kind of what I want. I think it's what a lot of people want. Ben, when you were media columnist at the New York Times, what I loved was that you actually got your hands dirty on just great reporting on Aussie media on this piece this column that you wrote on the troubles at WNYC if it, as it were back in 2021. It's the media's mean to moment. Stop yelling and go to human resources, which had me thinking about NPR, right? And public radio and the world that I inhabit. NPR this year had its worst layoffs in recent history. I think it had to call 10% of the staff. Amid this broader kind of uh, deep recession in kind of audio storytelling, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you've covered this quite a bit. Gimlet, Spotify, every media vertical company out there over-investing in, in podcasts, true crime series. There's just this, they're just oceans and oceans of this stuff right now. And that kind of the OG in this with NPR is having a true business model crisis. I think, you know, not unlike cord cutting with cable, you have younger people who don't listen to, I guess it's called terrestrial radio. They go straight to pods. And then even then in pods, you have a 5% market share as you guys in Semaphore break out for someone like a Joe Rogan. Yeah. I mean, I do think this again is that story of fragmentation where, there, yeah, where, where I think like our minds having thought about and covered media for the last, 20, 30 years think, well, okay, like, but who's really going to win? Who's going to consolidate it all? And right now, that's not the story. The story is there's lots of different paths to success, but none of that success looks quite like, you know, BuzzFeed on its best day of just total cultural dominance across giant networks. And there are great personalities. We know Audie Cornish, 
and various other people who've gone off to places like Vox and others, and they can port, or, or Sam Sanders of NPR, they can port that in an on-demand audio world. You no longer really have to genuflect before the NPR station to get that kind of access. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I do think that's right. Although at the same time, say, I mean, I'm in New York and there's no, WNYC is, you know, is probably smaller than it used to be, but it's still vastly the biggest, you know, it's vastly the sort of most important audio platform for public debate and discussion. And so, you know, it's it's not that it's being replaced by any given thing. It's just that it's a bit smaller and weaker. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the kind of rolling identity crisis in public media and radio is so deep in the culture, like you'll have to explain it to me. But certainly these business challenges don't make it any easier. Ben Smith, editor-in-chief and founder of Semaphore. In the few minutes we have left, I just have a broad kind of mega question, especially after reading your book, Traffic, which was a great fast read. I mean, it captured the zeitgeist of the tens and the, the early aughts kind of in New York, the various media startups, the blogosphere, Nick Denton and Gawker and BuzzFeed and these various wars. You've seen uh, various obits written about Vice Media and its bankruptcy and Shane Smith. And that was a golden, you know, at least that's something that you could you could walk into a pitch meeting uh, and just mention Vice seemingly six, seven years ago and walk out with a seemingly five, six billion dollar uh, valuation. We have gonzo documentaries. We have a TV network. We have people covering the Unite the Right rally. We're going to be going out into branded content and various other things. And it seems like every gigantic media company paid up for a stake in that. But in the end, was it was it kind of anything more than just a kind of a, a promise of a, this kind of la-la land that didn't exist? You know, I think, I mean, the question that I've gotten a lot, because I, I wrote this book about that era, is like, what were people doing putting money into these companies? Like hundreds of millions of dollars were invested, as you say, at these huge valuations in device and smaller amounts, BuzzFeed and others. Um, and actually, like, it's worth thinking about what the answer is, because the, a lot of the people who were involved in the early days of these companies were people who'd been around at the birth of cable. And cable was another massive, massive media transformation, like the internet. And what happened was, you know, some operators rolled out a bunch of wires all over the country and then essentially, you know, and then paid most and then most of the money that they got for plugging that wire into your house went back out the door to ESPN, CNN, right, MTV right. And, all, and this huge array of cable channels, HBO, that were doing stuff that like was special built for cable. It was more adult or longer form or more niche or more serious or dumber than you would find on broadcast. There was all sorts of, you know, and um. And so when the internet came around, a lot of the same people had been around that said, oh, I recognize this pattern. You have these companies rolling out distribution infrastructure, and they're going to need content. And as they get more serious, as the competition gets fiercer, they're going to have to pay for the best content. Now, you can say that was totally delusional. They were never going to pay. You can say, ah, maybe they should have paid. This user-generated content thing is kind of losing steam. But the reality is they never did pay. They were, they were very, very committed to sticking with user-generated content, which has the huge advantage from the kind of Facebook, Google perspective of being free. You know, the cable business is a much tougher business because you're paying most of your money back out to the people who do the work. Whereas in the, these tech businesses have huge margins and pay everybody absurd amounts and build these internal kind of socialist mini-states. So, so was, it, was it kind of yeah. a hedge your bets thing that they could get that kind of, you know, pre-money valuation money from Comcast? No, I, from yeah. Rupert Murdoch? Was it just wishful yeah. thinking or this well, will look good to Wall Street? Like, this, is, this is virtue signaling. Well, some of it was signaling to Wall Street that they were betting on the future in some sense. But no, but I also think they, so they believed that these companies would become what Viacom had become, 
which was a collection of ragtag digital uh, cable out assets like you know Comedy Central and MTV and you know or 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 what CNN you know CNN when it launched was referred to as chicken noodle news because the production values were such garbage and everybody made fun of them all the time and so I think they thought okay like Vice and Buzzfeed are a little weird and scrappy but as the whole th- ecosystem matures they'll grow up and they'll become and they'll reach business arrangements with the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world and everybody will get paid for a bunch of different reasons that never happened. And maybe it was never going to happen. I have a couple of whatabouts in closing or what happens. What's going to happen to CNN? It was pretty surreal to see Dylan Byers of Puck as kind of this central character in this long Tim Alberta piece in The Atlantic that effectively led to the expulsion of the head of CNN, all amid a broader excess, you know, the, the summer of discontent for Hollywood and everything Warner Brothers Discovery and David Zaslav is going through. And it doesn't seem to have a coherent, you know, mobile digital strategy, CNN. What's going to happen to that? Who could it merge with? What's the end game for them? You know, I think that it's funny. I think if you ask about any of these big media companies, my answer is going to be they're going to get smaller. I mean, I think, I don't know if they remain independent or if they stay inside the kind of cash-strapped Warner Brothers discovery, maybe slightly less cash-strapped after the success of Barbie Empire. But in either case, as you said, the cable economics, which are so amazing, which supported them at the scale they were at, are I mean, going away. It was away. an opiate. It was it was fattening. It anesthetized. Was it an opiate? It was just great. Have... It wouldn't make yeah. you sleepy. It was just money. It was amazing. Um, and and that business model is going away. But you know, but you know, and but on the other hand, it is an unbelievably trusted, globally trusted brand that is synonymous with quality broadcast cable. You know, quality video news, and that's not the, the demand for that isn't going away. And so even as much as they screw around and screw it up, I, I think that there's just, just so much value. Point two, I'm thinking about the final season of Succession and, uh, you know, some of the similarities to Rupert Murdoch, who's 92 and controls both the Fox News media empire. He definitely sold out of his entertainment assets to Disney, which I think saddled it with all this debt. But he also owns the Wall Street Journal, which he bought uh, just on the eve of the financial crisis. What's going to happen to the Wall Street Journal specifically after Rupert Murdoch? Are you convinced that his progeny wants to steward that asset? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a there's a widespread assumption that when Rupert Murdoch dies, you know, there'll be this sort of succession drama around all of these kind of irrationally managed news companies that his kids don't necessarily want. The journal is, a, but the journal, like CNN, you know, is an incredible publication, a great brand, incredible journalism tradition that maybe is being run in a slightly eccentric way by Murdoch, but ultimately, you know, has a real identity in the world that I think isn't, you know, that isn't going to go away. I think whether these kind of shambolic public companies that own the journal and Fox, kind of what becomes of them, isn't even that interesting a question. They're, they're so kind of weirdly run. And the, the parallel question is on Fox News. We have seen its hegemony questioned by some of these other, you know, straight to digital. You you interview Tucker Carlson. He's taking his talents to Twitter. There is a tremendous fragmentation in the kind of the wake of MAGA and the Donald Trump presidency and the Unite the Right movement and people being able just to tune into on-demand alternatives on their own. I mean, there's Megyn Kelly, right, who was at Fox News beforehand. Actuarially, though, What's going to happen to Fox News when it hits the kind of the shareholder level and they realize, gosh, we have septuagenarian audience overwhelmingly. I guess it has a digital strategy. Is it something that we've kind of looked at as a kind of a business model problem? Because no, the I, I shareholders think... have so far given the Murdochs 
broad runway. Yeah, because the food business just throws off so much cash. So much cash. Yeah. It's such a great business. They don't, you know, they don't go around like spending all this money on journalists that CNN does either. It's a pretty inexpensive, high margin, amazing business that, as you say, is you know has a dying audience who were not they were not able to persuade to download an app called Fox Nation, particularly like kind of a, a bust their digital strategy. I mean, my own bet I, I, is that they'll buy they'll acquire their way into a new audience. I mean, the Daily Wire, which Ben Shapiro founded, very, very successful, impressive right-wing media company with a younger audience just kind of sitting there for Fox to purchase. And I assume that's what will happen. Close us out, Ben Smith. Uh, what's going to happen with you guys? What was, what was kind of the gist of the 10-year plan that I kept hearing about, that we are patient? We have patient investors behind us. They're not going to force us into kind of the race to the bottom, clicks for click's sake that you documented in your book, Traffic, that we're going to play this out. This is a longer term, you know, like they used to say at Goldman Sachs, we're long-term greedy. <laughs> yeah, I'd say we're long-term ambitious. I mean, I think Justin and I both think that it takes a while to win people's trust, takes a while to build a business, takes a while to figure out which of the theories you had going in were right and which weren't, um, and what's going to work and what's not. And we want to be patient and careful and didn't want to give our investors or anybody else the impression that we were trying to build some business that popped up and looked great for a minute and sold before it collapsed, basically. And I just think that's also the nature of the news business. Like authentically, takes people a while to come around to the notion that they should trust you. The way you convince them that is you say, you know, you tell them what's going to happen tomorrow and you it happens. And then you do that enough times and people start to come around to the possibility that you're credible and that if they like the way you're, you're delivering the news. But I think people are right to be skeptical of weird new brands they see on the internet. And so we, we do really view this as a long game. And as promised, in closing, I'm going to break the wall and share with the listeners that I'm a big Semaphore fan. I found it in subscribing to the various uh, author newsletters and what I get from you Sunday night. You guys are, are hitting it kind of a year into this. I don't know how you decided on the color, the template. It's a little bit Financial Times, salmon-y. It, 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 it looks right. It looks good. It's pleasing to the eye on a, on a tablet or a smartphone. I like the brevity. I like how you bullet out the facts from what it means from the reporter's potential take. I like that it doesn't bombard you with clickbait or banner ads or some of the other tricks of yesteryear. You seem to be in the in the sowing the trust phase of this right now. And clearly, you're, you're feeling successful enough a year in to risk your reputation and come on my show, Ben Smith. So I am grateful for that. Yeah, this is going to be the moment I blow the whole thing up. Um, <laughs> well, th thank you for the kind words. I hope, you're, hope your listeners will sign up for Semaphore. Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of global media startup Semaphore. The book is Traffic. He was formerly New York Times media columnist. He was editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, a very well-traveled 25 years or so. Sir, you are always welcome to come back on this show. Thank you so much. It's, it's been fun. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. Again, if you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link please subscribe is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle fulldradio. A shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ, on WPVM down in Asheville, North Carolina, out in California on KPPQ. Message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And stay tuned for a roster of big live shows at the University of Richmond including NPR's Steve Inskeep, MSNBC's Rashida Jones, Chef Sonny Bawija, 
of Leja and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in December. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. Thank you for listening. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 